0: Good evening and welcome back to the Alex Amo I am a PT podcast and tonight we have someone who is pretty famous on Twitter uh, goes by the handle at Sun's opening band and he just informed me that it's in reference to a Quill Jam song. Uh, I am sort of ignorant on Pearl Jam, but <laughs> I will be finding out more about it after we do get off the podcast. But tonight we have Dr. Todd Davenport discussing how to humanize healthcare, uh, focusing on implicit biases and dismantling systemic structures so that we can become better providers.
1: Welcome, Todd, to our show. Thank you. God, what a privilege to be here. I was so stoked that you asked me and glad that it worked out and Man, when I saw the topic and my picture next to it, I was like, are you sure? Are you maybe you need to get somebody who who knows something, but I'm going to do my best.
2: No, always humble.
1: Todd,
2: Todd, Todd you know, he, he I've deemed him the Renaissance man, because Todd just knows he, he knows enough about everything to just enough to be dangerous. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so anybody that that has seen or interacted with Todd on Twitter, I mean, I, I always got to go grab some popcorn because Todd, uh, Todd, Todd comes with it, man. So thank you very much for taking the time uh, to be with us tonight. Um, we're definitely looking forward to it um, to to hear, you know, a lot of the things that you have to say. You're you're obviously very vocal on on Twitter, uh, which is the main you know platform that we all have, uh, interacted and kind of get to know each other, but, you know, and, and especially here with recent things that have happened mm-hmm. in, in our country and, and how it affects us, or for some that don't understand how it affects us, uh, you know, you, you've been a, a vocal proponent of that. And and that is something that, that I always respect about you because you, you're always willing to have the conversation. Um and, and it's the debate, you know and, and you're you're always willing to do that in in what I perceive to be a very professional manner and, and I think that that's something that we can all appreciate or should be able to appreciate because you know we're not always going to agree on things, uh, but we can at least respect each other to to listen and to understand and digest some of that information and that's actually one of, the, the major themes of, of our podcast. When, when Mo and I decided to, to do this podcast, it was to, to create a safe space f- for us and our guests to, to speak freely, um, for others to, to listen, to digest that, and, and then to be able to do something with it, um, whatever they see fit. Um, and, and like I said, it's not always something that we're gonna agree upon every time, but just the opportunity to listen. I think a lot of us are more ready to respond on the defensive as opposed to actually listening to what other people are saying. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about tonight's episode. I, I think you, uh, like I said, always bring a lot to the conversation. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us.
1: Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate both of you stepping up and filling a Filling a void in our discourse, a little bit longer form than 280 characters at a time, which is, you know, almost impossible to get anything done and change anybody's mind. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully through venues like these, where, you know, they're a little, little higher context, you know, a little more conversational, uh, things can kind of flow. People can be heard and understood, and maybe we get a little closer to where we, where I think we all want to go. So I, I, I applaud both of you for for your work here. Thanks.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, let's jump right into the most pressing discussion that has been We're jumping. happening since We're going to jump. Uh, since Friday's uh Supreme Court ruling um overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh there are some who would argue that abortion has nothing to do with physical therapy. While there are others who said, yes, it does impact our profession and people practicing in our profession and those who receive services from us. I have the opinion that when you politicize issues, especially social issues, it makes it very difficult to humanize it or to actually express empathy because you're picking one side versus the other. And I believe it's a tool that has been weaponized by those who want to ignore the social issues that are affecting how we deliver healthcare and how people have access to it and receive it and the experiences from it. Um, What's your opinion on our professional association taking a few days before it was able to release a statement, which some have called trite, um, on the matter that happened uh, last Friday.
1: Yeah, look, let's back up just a little bit and, and talk about sort of maybe the, the broader context of what's happening, and, and then maybe we get back to, to your question, which I think is, is a really...
2: do we lose her? Uh,
0: we probably seem to have uh, internet freeze. I thought that was mostly um, something that happened in um, the Caribbean.
2: <laughs> you know He's in know. California.
0: <laughs> uh, I'm okay. sorry, sorry, we there lost you for we lost life. you for a few. So yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. No, yeah, you're fine. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm relatively out in the sticks in California. <laughs> <So> oh, okay. <laughs> we're gonna try this again. I just anyway, I wanted to back up and just sort of start talking about uh, a little bit about the profile of our association. So we're we're one of the few professions that is predominantly women. Um, Something like 70% according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. uh, These are folks with uteruses who can become pregnant and um, and who are career oriented. So having reproductive choice is maybe uniquely important for for people who work in our profession, in our field, and for for advancement, uh, the ability to advance in a career. Uh, I think too, we have we have a bunch of people who um, are, are clinicians who care for people who who have pelvic health conditions. Some of those pelvic health conditions may be uh, related to, to to rape and to trauma, uh, may be related to abortion, uh, may be related to to childbirth. Um, and so, you know, having the ability to be able to practice to the top of your license in the pelvic health arena, uh, without needing to be concerned about you know, potentially reporting your patients for making reproductive health decisions that, that have nothing to do with you per se, but have everything to do with, you know, that that, that person and their physician. Um, and, and then just sort of the, the the broader context of how we think about using the social clout of our profession. Uh, I think PTs are, are pretty good at not thinking very much of themselves, <laughs> you know, so we think, yeah, you know, we're, we're just a PT. I'm just a PT uh which is a phrase that really i think disempowers us uh in a way that um that in ways that we can't imagine uh but you know the apta is 100,000 people collectively um 70 80 percent of those uh people identify as women uh people who have uteruses and so here we are um, with a a predominantly uh, uh, childbearing uh, or potentially childbearing profession uh, who needs that choice or could use that choice I think, too, and I've made this point in 280 characters that uh, kind of the default position was was, again, choice in society. That was the it was an uneasy detente. Of course, you know, you can you can have opinions about when the fetus becomes a baby and a child and those will
2: Come own california <laughs>
0: i'm thinking he's more up like
2: sacramento
0: uh, area
2: you you know he's not close enough to silicon valley apparently
0: nope
2: all right well while we wait for todd um you know he he made a a good point and i think we've talked about this recently about mm-hmm. Belitt- be- PTs belittling themselves, and therefore, as a result of that, the profession. And, and like I say, uh, you know, we're still at the little kid's table. We're still at the little kid's table. And I think that, you know, one, it looked like he was on that track to kind of giving another huge example as to how we're still at the table, because we can't take the responsibility to say, these individuals need us. All right, mm-hmm. is, is he back on?
0: Uh, Yeah, he's going to be coming back on. And um, Rich made a very uh, great point today on um, Facebook, uh, talking about the amount of uh, the population of membership. Uh, what uh, Todd was alluding to about uh, phys- women making up more than 70% of the profession. And in the U.S., it's thought that the profession was founded by women. Uh, In my research this morning, um, even with midwifery, it was done by women before physicians realized that there was a lot of money involved in childbirth and they got involved in it. But now because of the high maternal mortality rates, they're returning to using midwives and people are using doulas more now because they're realizing, It was all about the money before and it's crazy. (laughs) Again, as he was saying, we're we're just taking away people's choices. And um, you and I both have like uh, Anglo-Saxon-Catholic upbringing. So there are things that we believe in, but we don't believe we should be forcing that on other people. So Todd, now that you're back on, can you continue?
1: Yeah, sorry about that. I, I feel like I need more choice in my in my internet connection here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just just to, just to kind of finish the point that I think you were you were speaking to while I was gone, which is to say mm-hmm. that uh, you know that that choice belongs between a pregnant person and and their their uh, their health provider, their clinician, uh, not necessarily something that should be arbitrarily uh, reduced or restricted. Um, you know, I'll remind you that we're something like 57th in maternal mortality in this country, um, that those impacts are borne primarily by uh, by black mothers and mothers of color. Um, And just really, really important that we have um, those options on the table should we need to have them. So really it comes down to again, a a healthcare choice issue. So um, getting back to your initial question of you know, the APTA statement. I think the pelvic health section released a statement uh, that was well done, um, re- reflected the the importance of kind of framed up the importance of why it is that uh, pelvic health physical therapists in particular would care about this issue of reproductive choice uh, and, um, and did a nice, I think did a nice job. And then um, a, a, several hours later um, came the, um, the, the, um, the, the APTA's uh, statement, and I'll, I'll note that it wasn't sort of the APTA statement. I don't have any backstory on this, but it was uh, it was definitely signed by our APTA president, uh, Roger Her, which which was which was great. And it just didn't can't you can never read into these things in terms of how statements are created. You know whether the board of uh, of directors was consulted and declined to participate, or if it and the president just felt compelled to kind of go out on his own. Um, and while, while I think uh, based on my side of the ideological divide, of course, I would want to see uh, a lot stronger framing and language. I think the, uh, the statement did a lot of things well. Uh, and I, 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 wanna, I do want to tip my cap and acknowledge those things. The first thing it did is it made an explicit connection between abortion and physical therapy. Um, so And he spent some time doing that in, in order to kind of rationalize why it is that it's important that we speak up. Uh, I think, too, the other thing that I really appreciated about the statement was that um, he linked to the section, um, the academy that, that put forward the uh, initial statement, didn't step on their feet, didn't crib language, um, but really acknowledged the work of the people who are in the trenches by, uh, by linking to it. So, you know, look, um, I would love to see fire emojis and middle finger emojis, and you know, I've, been, I've been processing some feelings here if uh, we're we're not going to get that. And and I think that the even though the timing maybe was not ideal, I think that the structure was there and 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 I'm 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 glad we did something. Uh, speaking as a 23 year ABTA member. Um, now there's going to be plenty of time to make additional statements. Uh, there will be plenty more to speak of, I think with the Supreme Court uh, and its composition and its ideological bent. Uh, so there will be plenty more to talk to come. So uh, my my hope is that we're that we've warmed up with this one um, and can can consider how it is that we might um, make these statements faster, uh, which which kind of gets at the broader point. I'd love your take on this, but part of the reason that I think these things take so darn long is that we don't have these discussions until it's crisis time. Um, we sort of sweep it under the rug. We don't talk about sex, religion, and politics as PTs, which is not what we do. Um, we're relatively non-controversial, I think, as sort of a pro- as a professional philosophy. And uh, I think your podcast really fills that space to help people have these discussions so that there's consensus leading up to these types of emergency situations so that we don't you know, freeze and try to figure out what to do and what the sensibilities that we, we convey should be. What are your thoughts on that as as people who are doing work in this space?
2: Yeah, I I think you make a great point as to it it almost seems like we get caught, you know, as the phrase says sometimes with with our pants down, you know, like just not in tune with some of the things that that are going on and and kind of being ready. I, I also think that, as you said, by nature, um probably a non-confrontational very passive profession uh in my opinion uh I, I always you know when you were having some connection issues i made the point like and i've said this, i've said this recently i feel like we we sit at the kids table as a profession i don't think we're invited to sit at the grown-up table i don't think we make the effort to want a ta- a chair at the grown-up table so when, when we have that approach, it's very hard to be proactive and to have these conversations because we, you know, we don't think of ourselves as worthy. We don't think of ourselves as enough to, to sit at the table, to have these meaningful conversations. Um, and no matter what side of, of, the, of the, the, the topic you may be on, like, let's have the conversation, though because through this conversation is how we can evolve as individuals and as a profession um you know and 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 because we we don't want to have those conversations uh and the nature of our of our society right now is trying to make everything in my opinion black and white when there's just so much gray so we we do things in a manner as to not upset one side or the other you know a lot of conversation was had on twitter at least stuff that came up on on my feed was is the apta going to say something when are they going to say something what are they going to say you know and a lot of people came out and said well you can't make a statement because it's going to upset this percentage of the membership or of the profession um and And although I get that, um, we can't continue to move forward that way because we're just we're treading water. We're not going anywhere. Um, And I I feel like we're falling further and further behind the rest of the medical profession. Um, You know, we have to remember as much as politics are a part of daily life, like what our job is and our job is to provide high quality care to the individuals that need it, where they need it. Um, you know, we, we have to remember that that's why we do what we do is to help people. Um, you know, I don't I can't imagine that we have clinicians out there that part of their intake form is saying. What are you Republican? Are you Democrat? Do you believe in this? Do you not believe in this? And then based off of those few answers, we're going to decide how we do that. I. This is not how we do things. Um, and I can't imagine that this the most stout Democrat or Republican on the extreme is still not practicing that way. Right. So it's just my opinion that we need to move forward. We need to press forward. We need to be more aggressive with ourselves within the profession so that then we can decide and figure out how we move as a profession as a whole. And knowing that we have people from all over the spectrum within our profession, but that's how we grow.
0: Well, before we became a doctoral profession, we were always like an auxiliary discipline. And we've always been subservient to physicians, uh, even nurses, no matter what the setting in, because even in home health, um, we have to lay back for the nurses to be like case managers mostly clinical managers it starts even in the school because we are trained to always get a physician order always consult with someone before we can critically analyze or think of something we are told that we can't diagnose a patient we have to yield to a physician diagnosis Uh, so yes we perform our own evaluations and everything But we have never really been trained to take charge. And that carries over into how we practice and pretty much how we live. And if you're expecting that the physical therapy profession is going to lead that charge to jump out and make bold statements and fight for certain things. And care about social determinants of health before the AMA does or any other professional organization that's not going to happen until we step out of that frame of mind, because even amongst ourselves, there's argument about us being a doctoral entry level, uh, profession. And should we call ourselves doctors or not? So we, we're just going to continue to fight against each other and, you know, divide and conquer, nothing is going to get done.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of occurs to me that if you if you always defer, then people will expect you to defer. It becomes a, and then it becomes a mental habit. And then and then you wonder why you're always deferring and why people always expect you to defer. But it's, it's because you've always deferred. So so it's that it's that stepping out of that that mental habit, as you just mentioned, that I think is just really critical. And I wonder, I don't, I don't know, but my sense is that we step out of that by not so much speaking, but by listening. Um, I think we, and in particular, so, so, you know, I'm a cisgender white dude. Um, I'm pretty much as normie as you get. And, um, and my job really is to listen to people who don't have my background. Um, I think, and I, I might be misquoting, but I think, uh, the APTA is somewhere on the order of 70% white. Um, and, and so that's that's a challenge for us is that we need to, I think we speaking for the white folks (laughs) need to, need to listen. Uh, and we need to listen to, to sort of a lot of people in order to understand, understand perspectives that are, are not necessarily ours, uh, circumstances that have not been ours. And to do so in such a way that, you know, we, we accommodate, we, we lift up, we bring up, um, and that we don't sort of exploit and we avoid tokenism and so forth. Um, and so it's always been an emphasis for me, as as a white man, to just mind my space, mind the space that I occupy, because um, I feel like I can take up a lot of space if I really was aiming to do that. And I think it's really important that that you know that that we do that in such a way that we're able to listen to our patients and listen to perspectives that otherwise would inform our our perspectives. Which then feeds into having these difficult conversations. We have these difficult conversations not as, as you know, Dr. Alex, as you said at the outset, um, listening for agreement. You know, we but we need to listen for comprehension. Um, you know, so that we think before we speak. Uh, you know, for for me as a white man, I need to think about the spaces I'm in, the roles that I play in those spaces. Am I invited into those spaces as an op- as an opportunity to learn and to listen? Or am I invited into those spaces as a chance to contribute? And to be able to get clarification on <laughs> what what my appropriate behavior is going to be. And so, you know, I, I look at I look at my online persona and behavior sort of in that way. Um, where there are some spaces that I just kind of lurk in conversations and I'm reading and I'm interested and I'm learning. And then there are others where I feel like I can kind of get in there and get in the mix and have an exchange and a dialogue and so forth. But just uh, this whole idea of learning and learn, learning and learning how to listen, I think, is going to really serve us well as we start having some of these more difficult conversations.
2: No, absolutely. Uh, again, I think most of us, myself included, at, at any given time, we're we're not listening to absorb. We're just listening to react and, and to to kind of put forth our two cents to the matter right? You know, I'm not listening to Todd. I'm just waiting for Todd to finish so I can tell him how I feel um, without necessarily digesting what he said. Uh, and, and that just becomes a bigger problem. I mean, we, we've, as a profession, you know, we have arguments about manual therapy. Does manual therapy help? No, it doesn't help and all this, right? And we can't even have that simple conversation to listen to the other side because we're just waiting to tell that other individual, like, hey, what you're doing is placebo or all this other stuff, you know? So it, it's a constant battle, I feel, that, you know, obviously social media is going to magnify that um, to a certain extent. I feel, you know, people get Twitter fingers, so they, they say things and act in certain ways that they probably wouldn't do that in real life um, if the person was right in front of them. Uh, so it, 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 it's a tough, you know, we're in a situation right now. I feel like, you know, I said earlier if for our profession, a couple episodes, like, I feel like we're at a crossroads. I feel like we're at a point where we need to decide who we are and how we want to move forward as a profession on many different topics. Um, you can have that same attitude from a financial standpoint as to how we're moving forward with the cost of education, uh, what it takes to become a therapist, mm-hmm. uh, and Todd, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, you're a faculty member, so you interact with that that population a little bit more. You know, what it is like to be a student right now, uh, coming with the amount of cost associated with it into a profession where it seems like day by day there's someone's trying to cut reimbursement or, or figure out a way to, to make it more difficult just to make an, an honest living. Um, you know, we're, we're at a crossroads from a social economic standpoint, like how are we going to continue to, to meet our clients where they are and where they need us? Right. Can we give that care? Can we give that care freely and comfortably without having to think about potential legal ramifications or, or personal you know ideology and 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 things of that nature right so i we're, we're in, a, in a tough time i feel like we need to we need to figure things out um because if not we're just going to get further and further behind um and, and that only affects our future i mean you've been an apta member for 20 plus years so you've been doing this <clears throat> excuse me for a while it doesn't feel like i've been doing it a bit that long but i've been doing it for 14 years myself you know, and, and eventually we're going to get to a point where that, that baton needs to be passed on. So what are we passing on? What are we leaving for for the those coming behind us? That wasn't a question. I'm sorry if you're just waiting. But um, yeah, it's <laughs> no, that's
1: just- OK, because I didn't know how to answer it. But <laughs> what I'm what I'm hoping is, you know, we're leaving we're leaving behind a socially conscious profession, a socially responsive profession. And, you know, I've been really influenced by, you know, reading some of David Nichols work uh, in terms of deconstructing physical therapy and kind of the future of physical therapy. And, and really, you know, he has this whole discussion of how uh, professions can, can, uh, can sort of uh, serve as an underpinning to society, you know, Um, so help people be good, good consumers. Uh, help people participate in the labor market, um, help normalize quote unquote disability. Um, those are those are kind of where we have been as a profession. and um, what what I'm hoping is that we have a that we that we leave a profession that is um, more responsive to and asks more of the society in which we function. Um, you know uh, monique, as you just mentioned, um, gosh, the, 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 movement system occurs within a, a, social, cultural, political, legal, economic, commercial environment, right? It's like one of the first things we learn in motor learning is that the movement, selected movement strategy is, is influenced by the environment and not just your immediate physical environment in terms of the environmental constraints, but also all the factors that I just listed. And so very much, if we think about the movement system, we got to think about this other stuff, it's just, it's, it's just critical. Uh, and I think the moment of sort of our our, our world um, requires this of us, and that it's okay to ask society for something. Um, you know, to get out of that habit of being deferential. Um,
0: what can academia per se do? to encourage, as uh, Dr. Vanhu said in her uh, Linda Woodruff uh, third annual lecture, to encourage students to focus not only on the handwork, but the hard work. Yeah. Um, so they don't get fatigued or burned out, having to deal with the challenges that come upon graduating into a profession.
1: Yeah, I mean, what a, what a great observation and probably an entire Series of podcasts just on that, but uh, I think probably the first step in in the academic setting is to really make sure students have an understanding that their patients are humans, um, and that sort of not not all humans have access to the same opportunities and the same and the same outcomes in their health. Um, understanding that that, that peop- some people are fundamentally different based on how society sees them and judges them. Uh, I think that's appropriate. And I think that's something that's probably just as important as as memorizing anatomical structures if i'm if I'm being super controversial here. But uh, I would say that would be the first step. and then and then so then raising the awareness, of course, is one thing. But then, you know, trying to give a vocabulary to it, encouraging people to talk about it, encouraging people to be curious about it. Um, those are the things that we can stimulate in, uh, even when we're still on campus. Uh, providing opportunities for people to serve the community, not in a parachute, parachute in and, and provide a, a service at a health fair kind of a way, but really academic settings, reaching out to community partners and forming lasting connections to be able to provide needed services. And to, and to, um, and to also capitalize on the strengths that our communities. Uh, not just look at things as a as a constant deficit all the time. Um, our program has a, has a service learning requirement. That's sort of how we look at things. Uh, it's not an onerous service learning requirement for graduation, but it's just enough to make sure that people know that there's a broader community out there uh, that really that really needs our support and really uh, on which we can really build on on strengths. So not just thinking about that patient in front of you, but thinking about the the patient the the people beyond that patient. Um, you know, I think too, um, making sure that people understand that some of the clinical challenges that we see in terms of, um, you know, being able to help patients uh, are not necessarily that sort of patient's fault, um, that there are there's variation in education, educational attainment, um, health literacy, socioeconomic resources, uh, and how well those can be converted into, you know, kind of health relevant resources so that you can maintain their health. Um, you know, occupation, uh, and opportunities afforded by occupation, social, you know, salary, um, medical insurance, that there are a whole host of different reasons that might explain why people come in and Maybe you're not getting the outcomes that you hope for or you want or the patient hopes for or they want. And that you're able to see the historical, the economic, the legal, the political, the regulatory reasons behind some of those things. Um, not just giving somebody a walking program without asking about their neighborhood and whether that is something that is feasible for them to do in their neighborhood because their neighborhood is, is safe or if they have sidewalks. Or you know, if they have a, a substantial mobility impairment that slow, slows their gait speed, and they have to cross a busy street, you better make sure that they can get across the street before the signal turns. Uh, but to be able to formulate those types of issues, not so much as clinical ones, but as um, as non-clinical ones, and understand that there that there are, are kind of forces outside the clinic that bring to bear on your your relationship with your patients and with your caregivers. Um, so I think that those are the things where I think we can be really strong. And then we we should really push to follow those formative experiences on campus up with specific mentored experiences in clinical education. Uh, I think we forget that a lot of the time that the student spends in the program is spent off campus under the mentorship of trusted others. And so formalizing experiences where people have a chance to be able to serve the community, uh, people have a chance to be able to um, you know, ask questions, be challenged by someone who has a different background than them uh, is is also important, useful, and helpful. Um, so, I, so I see that the academic environment can do a lot of things uh, and do a lot of helpful things. I know that there's varying levels of comfort with doing those things across programs. There's also varying levels of expertise. I mean, not everybody has somebody who has public health training and sort of understands the field and can can under, can figure out how to, to bring that into to a dpt program. So there's there's a lot of factors at play there, but you know some things I think that, that can really help.
0: I have two follow-up questions. Now there's been a big push to have more business classes in DPT programs. I'm gonna start making a push for there to be implicit bias training in all DPT programs. So students, no matter where they study in the country or where they grew up, can become better clinicians and be able to be comfortable having the difficult conversations on social media and with their clients and when they encounter people who are different from them. So that's one thing that I would strongly advocate for. I don't know how it can be incorporated in the DPT program, but maybe to push it. And, uh, my next (laughs) question is going to be, um, when you guys are doing like the admissions, okay. Uh, certain questions asked to students to evaluate, um, how they will process um, real life situations and challenges if they face uh, or encounter a patient um, that's different from them?
1: Do you guys do so, that? Yeah, a couple couple of really good good comments. Um, the implicit bias training, I think, is is really important because again, that's part of surfacing one of the mechanisms for for bias you know that gets propagated throughout the the medical system and i i would say and i would i would push farther than that um to say it's not enough uh we have data to suggest that that uh, you know implicit bias training may not be enough to reverse you know kind of the harmful effects of of interpersonal and systemic racism so again that that goes back to that it's nice to know but you really have to have again really specific mentored experiences you have to have People who you know sort of understand bias and understand how it operates, and uh, to be able to sort of call it out in teachable moments, and you know to be, to be able to have curious, non-confrontational conversations uh, about things as they happen, and um, and I, so I would take it further actually than than maybe you would, you would had just taken it. Um, you know, as for um, you know I- admissions questions, I think that's a that's a great. I think that's a great strategy. Hadn't really considered that. I know that holistic admissions is considered differently by different programs. You know, in terms of you know getting away from standardized test scores and GPA that we know um, demonstrate uh, certain important biases in the admission process. Um, and I think I think every program's kind of doing it a little differently at this point. Um, and so, but yeah, I think you're, you're on the right track with that, that, that we really need to think about our workforce, the composition of our workforce, giving folks opportunities that mm-hmm. who historically have not, have not, you know, necessarily had those opportunities to be able to, uh, to pursue a, a DPT education. And I think that's part of how we turn this around is that, you know, it's one thing to have, um, hard conversations, but when you're having hard conversations with, 70% white folks sitting around a table, it's just a little hard to, I think it's a little hard to hear, um, especially when, when folks may be listening for agreement uh, or for a response instead of for understanding.
2: Okay. Now, you mentioned earlier, Todd, you know, obviously some of the the, the things that need to happen with students and making them aware of, you know, the different social uh factors that that come into play as to how we work with our patients and how we try to set them up for success um and in the last couple years you know obviously covid uh played a a major factor in in everybody's lives uh impacted everybody's lives in in many different ways but one thing that we kind of came i would say further to light was the disparity um, in access in in healthcare uh the trust in the healthcare system um amongst different uh parts of society i I think really became pronounced in in the people that um seeked care uh, and how they trusted that care um and and i i know that you've been a big proponent about covid uh, and, and even progressing into long COVID, but how it affected those different populations. Um, if you can speak on that as to, you know, how you've seen it and, and what you've learned from, from your interactions and, and the things so that if I'm not mistaken, you put, done some stuff with the long, long COVID and, mm-hmm. and putting, you know, things together for, for information.
1: Yeah, for sure. And um, you know what a weird time in human history to be uh, a physical therapist who knows something about post-viral fatigue. <laughs> so I've been, been busy with my research group, really trying to aggregate resources from our experience in researching and trying to help people with myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is commonly post-viral, not always, um, but with a lot of important um, similarities to a certain subset of people with long COVID. Uh, who who just aren't getting better. And so the management strategies are are similar, or this is not the same condition, but it's that they're similar. Um, But I wanna back up and talk a little bit about um, the disparities, because I I agree with you, Dr. Alex, that, you know, we've, uh, we've, I don't know if we've learned more, but we sure saw the same thing in a different context, right? Like, Mm -hmm. so we knew that health disparities were a thing before. We knew that there were differences in exposure we knew that there are differences in illness. We knew that there are differences in care. We knew that there are differences in outcome. Um, and then the consequences of those outcomes are also different, all based on uh, primarily race and gender. Um, and COVID just reminded us of all that, in just faster and harder. Um, so in some ways, uh, it was like, wow, this is eye-opening. And in some ways, it was like, well wow, yeah, it's happening again. You know, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. This is just sort of another thing that application of a thing that we knew. Uh, my concern, you know, sort of as, as we go forward with, with long COVID is that, you know, there's something like 17 million people currently with, with post-COVID symptoms. So this is not an uncommon thing. This is our polio moment, right? Like our generation's polio moment, but yet we're not doing much with it. You know, the patient groups are doing a great job. I think certain certain physio groups are doing an awesome job. Um, but, you know, I think collectively, we sort of haven't quite, have, for some reason, haven't quite got there. I have my, my reasons my, my reasons to think that. But my concern is, you know, again, we go back to differences in expo- in, in outcomes and differences in consequences and we know that there have been racial disparities in uh, in outcomes, um, and I'm concerned that there are people being swept under the rug, who are who are consistently swept under the rug because they're historically marginalized, um, and they're just we're just doing it again faster and harder with long COVID, um, and so we, we we need to take this opportunity to learn and to do better.
0: Okay, um, this would seem sort of controversial, but. You live in California, so I'm not sure what the Medicaid reimbursement is in the state of California, but I know there are several private clinics, um, that don't accept Medicaid because they said it doesn't pay and it doesn't meet the cost of hiring, uh, clinicians. So that's denying like a huge percentage of the population access to physical therapy that they would need, uh, even for people with disability after they cross the age of 21, um, they have to go on Medicaid. So if you were born with cerebral palsy or spina bifida or any other condition, after you've aged out of the system of 21, you pretty much don't have that access to care because there are very few outpatient clinics that would provide, uh, services to you. So to me that cuts off a huge, um, access to care, uh, experience it challenges our position on being able to transform society by encouraging people to move because we are limiting that. And it's sort of going on the opposite end of humanizing healthcare because we are just focused on reimbursement and productivity. And to me, when you focus too much on productivity, you're focusing more on quantity versus quality. And you're not only harming the patients, but you're also harming the clinicians. When you keep driving, you have to do this, you have to do this, because you're encouraging burnout. So um, do you have any strategies or offers since you also work in our patient setting, um, to help, uh, clinics navigate that tough choice of, should I accept Medicaid or not?
1: Yeah. You know, it's, it's a good question and I don't know everyone's books <laughs> and I probably shouldn't. Um, but, but I would say this, that, yeah, we're talking about giving our DPT students more business training which runs the risk of making health a widget that we need to produce more. Uh, and we look at health through an economic lens. Now let's flip it just for the sake of argument before like half of PT Twitter wants to burn the website to the ground because they wanna see more business classes in PT school. Um, if you look at it through a health equity lens, now what you've done is you've looked at the culture of your, your, cor- your corporate culture. You've decided that health equality is important and you build your budget based on a model of health equality instead of saying you know what we got to build units but oh by the way we have all these folks that can't access care Mm, can we charge enough for that widget it's just a different mindset so with all respect to folks who really want to see more business training you know i'm i'm you know i'm all for that If we want to expand DPT to four years, four and a half years and pack full of all kinds of stuff, let's do that. Um, No. (laughs) My sense, you know, based on having kind of started programs and started, started, um, you know, academic majors and, you know, being at the presence, present, the start of starting a business is that, you know, I'm not sure that any level of training outside of an MBA is really going to make you feel optimally comfortable. You're going to be uncomfortable uh, with that. So my sense is, why don't we teach students about health disparities? Why don't we give them something to build a business around? And so then the Medicaid question becomes different. It's not, what does it pay? It's how do we get these people in the door? Um, because you start to think about your business practices and you build your budget around that. So, um, so Dr. Ryan Shelton
2: out in Kentucky is doing something like this. He's on Twitter. I, I was exactly who, as you were as you were. I don't mean to cut you off, but as you were talking, that's exactly who came to mind. Yeah. Because he he puts it. You know, it's one thing to talk about it, and then there's another thing in actually doing it. Yes. And outside of Twitter, I've never interacted with him, but I know that what he says he does is definitely in line with what we all think we should be doing, but don't actually have the willpower to put ourselves in that kind of a situation, right? Mm -hmm. Because as you, as you said, we look at it from a financial, uh, lens where we're just trying to make money, whatever that number is um to to just grow the business that way but but i think ryan is uh, a prime example of you can be successful and still meet the needs of everybody in your community so i think that's a
1: really valid point because really at the end of the day um you know you can teach somebody how to build a business but why are you building the business? What's the business for? Who does it serve? Why, why does it exist? You know, those are the kinds of questions I think that are foundational. If you get those right to start off with, then you, you figure the rest out. But if you kind of like, if you kind of start off with, you know, we're gonna have a business to provide services, to have a business to provide services, to have a business to provide services, you, you don't really come back to the why so much. And I, I really think that people need to focus on that why. Which is, you know, why I think um, introducing this idea and talking about health disparities becomes really important because you have a chance to incorporate that why at the ground level as you're building the business. And there's lots of examples. You know, Ryan just kind of immediately comes to mind, but there's plenty of examples of folks who are out there doing it, and they provide a really cool proof of concept. So it's not just like some academic windbag on a podcast, you know, BSing about you know like a business model that is like pie in the sky, but it's actually happening.
0: Well, that's, that's definitely, uh, good to know. Um, I have even thought about, can we do like a a pay scale, um, for clients? Like when mental health became a big thing in the country, um, mental health therapists were able to create the pay scale to adjust to, uh, the different, um, insurances that are available and that could be something we can do in physical therapy space as well, too. Um, Recently, I was a speaker at the NABPT conference and there was a sponsor, BrightPay, that offers um, a payment plan model for physical therapists. And that was the first time I heard about it. So that could be something clinics could incorporate as well, too, for people who have high deductibles and if they want them to come in, they could go on a payment plan the same way people do at the dentist and for other cosmetic surgeries.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, there's there's lots of different models to, to be able to accommodate, you know, folks who, you know, who don't who who maybe. So there's this mismatch between like who walks into your clinic and who's in your community. They're just they're different folks. Right. Um, and so ideally, we would want to make sure that those are the same group of people. Um, and that's how we know that we're achieving some measure of health health equity. And I think those are great strategies to be able to do that.
0: Very true. So um, what advice um, now would you give to, to leaders in our profession on how to encourage them to have these difficult conversations so they don't feel like they're alienating members? I think one of the biggest reasons, too, why we don't have these difficult conversations is because people are scared to lose money. They think they will lose followers. They will lose subscribers. They're going to lose members. And as I said to Jerry today, um, as we were discussing backstage, I it became an epiphany for me after my little mishap, which you said it was more than a little mishap.
1: It <laughs> was more than a little mishap. <laughs>
0: Okay, fine. Yes. (laughs) It was something that got me sidelined for a little while, but, um, it it started to put things into perspective and yeah, as a business owner, those were things that I cared about a lot prior to that. But now I'm like, look, people are going to leave anyway. So maybe they weren't meant to be your customer, or your follower or your subscriber, because what you value in being your authentic self, they don't value. So they don't need to be around.
1: Yeah, it's um so I was reading a report and I was I was actually just trying to pull up the report so I didn't totally screw up <laughs> screw up the, the, the report because I he always
0: brings the facts, um, Alex. I'm telling you, you know, man. When you, when
2: you read stuff. Sometimes you read too much stuff. He, he, he needs stuff enough up. to be dangerous. He just, he's just he got a little bit from everything.
0: Well, Ed, Edwin said he he didn't want to derail a very important conversation, but you, Ted is the man. Carry on. So, <laughs> thanks, <awesome>. Edwin.
1: <laughs> and the feeling is mutual. Um, he's bringing metrics to rehab in baseball,
2: so watch him. He's
0: uh, Oh, okay. Nice. He's good.
2: He's good you should have yeah, edwin does a lot of stuff on the fantasy oh yeah fantasy um front, so, I, he, I definitely so i've been it. trying
1: to get him to scout long and do reports on long snappers because that's the middle of the special teams but you know uh not yet but we'll get there I'm
0: working on it. <laughs> all right edwin, um, so queue up we'll probably have you in the podcast <laughs> and a lot of half of the year okay <laughs> so yeah, this we might, uh, we this might record, have
2: to do a, a, a fantasy football special with him
0: yep
1: now that, that would be money. Uh, let me know when that is because I'm going to need that. Like, that. yeah, I'm scouting long snappers. Like I'm not even looking in the right place. So <laughs> <laughs> just shows you how much help I need. <laughs> so so that's either too deep or just in the wrong direction. Um, so this report that, that I'm just kind of talking through is uh, what majority men think about diversity uh, and inclusion and how to engage them in it. So that's kind of a, Thought-provoking title: Majority Men. So these are these are men uh, who who are from backgrounds that are well represented. Um, so essentially, white cisgender men, uh, mainly corporate leaders. Uh, and so they did some focus grouping of of some different folks, and um, they followed that followed it up with a, a nationwide kind of poll. And the the um, the summary advice that these folks gave, and I, I'm, I'm scrolling the report because I want to make sure not to screw this up for your listeners, is that you know, folks. So, the our I would I would ask our leaders to be confident. Um, you know, I think I think we all operate from a a, a level of uh, we operate better when we're feeling confident about things, and that folks should should come in, you know, being confident with themselves, you know, with the intentions of their leadership uh, style. Uh, and, you know, kind of really making sure that this confidence makes you hopefully less threatened by diversity. You have to be confident. So that's the first, the first kind of high level piece of advice. Now, the second one is kind of in opposition to the first, because it says be vulnerable. So you have to be, you have to be kind of okay to be wrong. Uh, you have to be okay with learning new things. Um, you can't be arrogant. You know, very few of us are experts in this you know, area of social justice. We shouldn't pretend that we are. I'm not going to pretend that I am uh, by any stretch of the imagination. We're all learning. We're all in a in a in our own air, our own growth curves. Um, and to be able to say, hey, you know, I don't know it all, but I'm committed to being to being my best. And I want you to tell me when I make a mistake. And be open about that. Um, it builds trust, and I think people take that to heart. And I don't. I don't kind of care who you are. Um, that that that's the kind of thing that if you're able to live that and in a in a in a credible way, uh, you know, I think I think it builds trust. You
0: and know, it Then it goes
1: on to say to to be curious, where you're continually inviting, you know, d- different perspectives from your own, and you're meaningfully incorporating them into, um, in this case, you know, the business or the business of what you do, or the APTA or your clinic um and making that and making that a visible endeavor not advertising it you know we're not we're not going for tokenism here we're not saying hey look at what we do um but we're, we're we're trying to make meaningful steps towards um incorporating voices and perspectives that we ordinarily wouldn't and then the last one is to be patient and persistent because people are impatient um leaders tend to be impatient leaders are only in a certain place for for, for a given amount of time uh, if you're elected, your term expires. Um, even if you if you if you lead a clinic, you manage a clinic. Oftentimes, there's some some turnover, um, but you have to give this a chance in order for it to work. And uh, without the expectation that you're going to be perfect, that it's always going to be comfortable um, to listen to and incorporate perspectives and and sort of backgrounds that are different than your own, but that um, you know folks should be you know should should set goals along the lines of of belonging um you know short-term goals intermediate term goals long-term goals they're familiar to us as pts but we, we can do that for ourselves we do that for other aspects of our career development we do residencies we study for exams um you know we, we we open businesses we have a three and three and five year plan we should probably have a three and five year diversity self plan so you know i, I guess if i had any advice if i was qualified to give advice that those would be the the pieces of um of information that I would, I would encourage folks to think about.
2: And, and they seem pretty simple. And and a lot of times it's the simple things that we, we make complex, right? Like we, we, we take these situations, these thoughts and ideas that are, are just plain, simple things to do. And we look to make them harder than they need to be because we want to feel a certain way about ourselves. Um, And
1: I think, uh, you know, what gets prioritized gets done. And I think from the perspective of changing behavior, we know how hard that is. You know, as physical therapists, we're, we're, we're movement specialists, but we're behavior change artists, (laughs) right? That's we're trying to help people make a better change in their life. And we know that the simple stuff gets done and the stuff get, that gets prioritized gets done. And so if both priorities and simplicity can come together, um, why not this? Why not? Why not this? Like everything else?
0: Um, I agree. Um, for the most part over the past, like two to three years, I have been approached by cis, uh, white males, um, saying that it's sort of uncomfortable for them to talk Mm -hmm. about certain things because they fear that they may say something, that's wrong. And it's like they're stepping on toes. So they don't want to, you know, rattle any, um, feathers. So some people are afraid to speak out. And as you said, the biggest part is just listening and being patient. I sometimes say stuff too, that I step on toes, but I'm becoming more mindful of that. Uh, you're not going to be perfect in everything, but showing support, and empathy for situations and circumstances that you have not been traditionally raised in or been around Um, is all that matters. Um, And people know that you care. And if you genuinely care care by the stuff that you do and say. So you don't have to be perfect all the time in, in what you say and what you do. We just need to see the effort.
2: Well, and, and to piggyback on that, I think you just need to be genuine, because if you're genuine, then it's going to be okay when you make mistakes. It's going to be okay uh, when when you do step on toes or say something that could be offensive. You're not because you're coming from a genuine place. So it's a lot easier for somebody to understand you if they know that where you're coming from is genuine and, and good and and. We're not perfect. You know, we're gonna make mistakes. We're gonna say things that we probably shouldn't say. But if I'm coming to you from a genuine place and I say something, then at the same time, I know that in this example, if I said something to Mo, Mo would know where I'm coming from. So Mo said Mo wouldn't necessarily take it in an offensive manner. She would sit there and correct me, right? But it wouldn't be like, Well, you 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 idiot. You You know that kind of a thing it's like hey look i know where you came from but this is how we we probably should address that in the next point right but it goes to that like you know being patient being vulnerable just being genuine i feel it it is going to get you a long way because people people will will respect that um i feel
1: yeah absolutely have good faith and put in the work and you know i'm I can be sloppy as hell. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not a perfect person at all. <laughs> so I say, I've been accused of having too few speed bumps between my brain and my mouth, <laughs> and, that, and that gets in my way. I've also <laughs> been accused of writing checks with my mouth that my behind cannot cash. <laughs> so I, so I understand that too. But really, at the end of the day, you know, if you, if, you know, if you, if you're curious and you're willing to be you're amenable to be corrected in making mistakes um and you know again you approach you approach conversations with good faith i think that's i think that's the trifecta you know as far as things go and and, you know i'm learning that all the time that my mix my my balance is is different than others um but yeah, always learning, always in that growth curve, and having a having a mindset that permits myself to not be perfect and make mistakes. Uh, very,
0: very true. So, in summary, um, as you said, we are behavioral specialists or artists, and it does take time to mold and change behavior and adapt. So we just have to be patient, uh, listen, become more self-aware, and. That's how we humanize our healthcare. So thank you, Todd, for your presence on our podcast tonight. I'm sure we're going to have you on again. I would love it. it, This was fun.
1: Thank you both. This was
2: a blast. Awesome. Thank you very much. Really really appreciate your time. Um, You know, hopefully by the time we get on the next podcast, Mm -hmm. we can talk about those uh, robot umpires you want so good. I am ready for the robot
1: overlords, my friend. That is uh, (laughs) some of these calls I can't, and it's not just my team, by the way, it is, uh, it is all teams. Uh, <laughs> so.
2: Good deal. Well, again, thank you very much. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Um, and as always for our followers and those that are tuning in for the first time, thank you. Thank you for the support. Please subscribe on our YouTube. Uh, follow us on mm-hmm. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter at the Alex and Mo. Um, Thank you, thank you very much. The support we've gotten, the response we've gotten, has been uh, so overwhelming uh, and, and definitely very motivating for Mo and myself to to keep doing this, keep putting out content, keep getting uh, some some meaningful discussions going on here, which you know hopefully can play a, a, a small part in, in the future of our profession.
0: Yes, All
2: right, and so. we welcome
0: anyone who it's totally against all opinions to be on the show. We would love it. So shoot us a DM if you're on Twitter and we'll have you on the show.
2: Absolutely. All right, everybody have a good night. Thanks again, Todd. Really appreciate you, my friend. Thank
1: you. Appreciate you both. Be well.